0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. My power's back on, as is my internet. Not that the modem and router work when there is no power. Anyway, um, it, was, it, it, it was a fun day when the power was out. Anyway, today we continue reading Virgil's Aeneid. We are up to book three. As a reminder, I'm working from the Fitzgerald translation. In the last book, we saw the fall of Troy through the eyes of Aeneas, but he and his crew hadn't made it to Carthage yet, so he's not done telling Dido his story. In today's book, his story continues. Aeneas and his merry band of Trojans spend the winter building a fleet of ships, and when summer comes, they set sail. The first place they land is Thrace. Being a good, pious son, Aeneas prepares a sacrifice to his mom. The sun, though, is really bright, so he decides he should build a roof over the altar. But each time he pulls up some myrtle, the roots bleed. Aeneas is understandably disturbed by this sign. On the third try, the ground finally cries out, or more specifically, the ghost of Polydorus, a Trojan prince who is buried there. You may remember his story from when we covered Euripides' Hecube or Hecuba, but in case you've forgotten, his ghost tells Aeneas his sad tale. Priam sent Polydorus to Thrace to keep him safe from the Greeks, and Polydorus carried a decent amount of Trojan gold with him, but as soon as the Thracian king heard that Troy had fallen, he killed Polydorus and took the gold and buried him in this shallow grave. Aeneas and his crew hold a proper funeral for their fallen countrymen and set sail again. The next place they land is Delos, also known as Ortigia, where Aeneas is both king to the Delians and priest to Apollo. Given that, it seems only right and proper to seek the counsel of Apollo, so that's what Aeneas does. And Apollo reiterates what Venus has already said. Aeneas's descendants will rule their new land for generations. Not so specific and exactly where that might be, so the men debate where they should go next. And Kaise says that maybe Apollo means Crete, giving a lengthy speech explaining his reasoning. Since he's old and therefore clearly wise, everyone agrees they should give Crete a try. Aeneas tells everyone they'll build a new city there and call it Pergamum. Everyone loves the name and they give it a go. It doesn't go well. Their trees and crops die. Anchises says that maybe they should go back to the Oracle on Delos, but they don't have to. The household gods come to Aeneas in a dream, smack him upside the head, and remind him about the whole settling in Italy thing that Venus had mentioned. He tells Anchises about his dream. Anchises says, oh yeah, I remember Cassandra saying something about that. Because why would we have listened to Crazy Cassandra when they were back in Troy? Anyway. Clearly, Crete is not the right place, so Aeneas and his merry band of Trojans set sail again. The young and old men head west, get caught in a storm, and sail three days and nights through a fog before they finally land on the Strophides, where the harpies live. You may remember how the Argonauts drove them from where they'd been pestering Phineas, this is where they move to. But they're still up to their old tricks, pouncing whenever the men try to eat. Which Kailano the head harpy, justifies by explaining that it's not fair of the men to steal their food and water. And then she curses them, or at least tells them what to expect. Because they stole the harpy's food, the Trojans will suffer famine before they manage to found their new city in Italy. And that famine's going to be so bad that they'll want to eat their tables. It's just such a weirdly specific detail. Anchises loudly prays to the gods that they might be spared this famine and then the Trojans turn tail and get out of there. This time they land on Actium. They praise Jove for their safe delivery from the harpies. Aeneas leaves his shield behind so that the Greeks know that not all of the Trojans were destroyed. But then Aeneas gets word that Andromache and Helenus are still alive and now ruling as heirs to Pyrrhus. Naturally, the Trojans set off for his kingdom as a safe place to spend the winter. Which means yet another year has gone since they left Troy, and they are still nowhere near Carthage, where Aeneas is telling this story, let alone near their final destination in Italy. Andromache is shocked to see Aeneas alive, and frankly, Aeneas is kind of surprised to see that Andromache is really still alive, too. She tells her story, which is pretty similar to what we read in Euripides' play about her. And then she asks after Aeneas's family, particularly little Ascanius. And then Helenus arrives and invites everyone to follow him, follow him to the city, which is effectively a mini Troy. Aeneas and his crew stay until the seasons change. It is only then that Aeneas decides to ask Helenus for help with the prophecy he received from the Harpy Calano. Helenus gives Aeneas directions to Italy and then instructions on how to go to the Underworld. He also warns Aeneas of dangers along the way, going into great detail describing Skill and Charybdis, embellishing on the earlier descriptions we read in Homer. And then Helenus tells Aeneas that once he reaches Italy, he should be especially deferential to Juno and visit the Sibyl of Cumae. The men go through the usual rituals of guest friendship before Aeneas and his crew set sail again. It goes pretty well. They can see Italy. It's right there. And they see the strait where Scylla and Cryptus live. And they say, oh, look, that's where Scylla and Cryptus live. We won't be going that way. So they don't go that way. And they sail on and see Mount Etna and Sicily. As they're going along, a man flags them down. He's desperate for rescue, so the Trojans rescue him. He introduces himself, Achmenides, He was traveling home from Troy to Greece with Odysseus. And then he tells the Trojans all about the Cyclops that lives nearby and basically recounts a large chunk of Book Nine of the Odyssey. As he finishes his tale, Polyphemus comes running out of his cave. Aeneas takes one look and tells his crew to run away, so they do. Thrilling, isn't it? They make their way around Sicily, continuing to avoid skill and cryptus. Very useful having a member of Odysseus's crew available as a guide. They eventually land at Drepanum, and there, Anchises dies. It's not a detailed death, it's just the death of an old man whose time has come. And after mourning his father, Aeneas and his crew set sail again and get blown to Carthage, and that's his story, and that's also the end of Book 3. Did any of this sound familiar to you? Virgil really did use those earlier sources, and this book is drawn from both of those Greek travel logs that we read, The Odyssey and the Argonautica. And I do find it to be frustrating because Odysseus's adventures are so thrilling and Aeneas's are meh. But that's partly because Virgil is a youngest child when it comes to these epics. Do you know the reason that a youngest child is messy if the oldest is tidy, or why the youngest is punctual if the oldest is perpetually late? It's in order to carve out their own identity. And Virgil is doing the same. He doesn't need to tell us an adventure story about encountering Polyphemus. Homer already did that. At the same time, it really takes away from the excitement. Um, fortunately, we do have someone to recount the story of what happened to Odysseus's men, but it's not anything that happens to Aeneas. It's a story that they listen to. So it's at this point—a story within a story within a story. It layers. It's got lots of layers. I do want to touch briefly on Andromache. It's Helenus's kingdom, technically. Yeah, you know, it's, we live—we live. Well, we still live in a patriarchal structure, don't we? And it was definitely patriarchal back then. Uh, but Andromache is the entry point to this kingdom. And on this rereading, I found it particularly touching that she asks after Aeneas' son. Ascanius would be around the same age as Astyanax, Andromache's son, who was brutally killed when Troy fell. So there's there's this melancholy to her exchange with Aeneas. It, is completely colored by their shared history and all of the losses they've suffered and that's a big thing to remember as we're reading the Aeneid this is a story of trauma and of people living with and through trauma and as we continue to read we'll see that some are able to weather it better than others So what do you think of Aeneas' adventures in book three? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can find me on Patreon should you feel so inclined. I'm there as triumvirclio. That URL is in the show notes too. In the next episode, we'll cover book two, chapter three of the Bibliotheca. Talk to you then.